My guest on today's episode of Bootstrap Bitch is Christopher Wheel. You'll know him from his toilet paper role resume as an actor. He was an athlete. He is a father. He is an advocate. He is a gentleman who had a really rough health scare and has come out the other side bigger and better and stronger than ever. Here he is. I am with the amazing Chris Wheel. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, by the way. Are you kidding? You are. You are a bootstrap bitch. <laughs> that should have been the name of your book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> your book, Trying to Walk Like a Man, is kind of, I agree with your sister and I agree with your mother that you don't try. I've actually never known you in the time I have known you. You've never tried to do anything. You just simply do. Um, oh, you do so without complaint and without bitching. I believe you came to L.A. in 94. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I, I graduated from the University of Washington in 93, and I won this talent search. April Henry, who was one of the heads of daytime at ABC, she was doing a whole talent search for One Life to Live and All My Children and Loving, and, and she went around all the colleges, and I entered it at the University of Washington, and I, and I won the thing. And so they said, go to New York. They set me up with all the casting directors there, and I was too tall for One Life because all the tall guys were on All My Children. So that was kind of, I was slotted to go there. And then they said, well, we don't have a part for you now, but if you come out, you know, in the next three or four or five months, we'll make one. Well, I got out there with very little money and got two jobs. I was a personal trainer in the morning and then a Gap security guard at night. I couldn't fold the clothes for Gap, but they saw how big I was. And they were like, wait a minute, how would you like to work at the Gap for security? You get two more dollars an hour and you don't have to fold any clothes or do anything to clothes. I'm like, fantastic. You talk about in your book, which is so interesting and in why you are an actor and a filmmaker, because quite frankly, Chris, you failed at everything else. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you were a terrible folder. You were a terrible waiter. Terrible. Terrible. You didn't even last a shift. Not a shift. Half of a shift. And ran and cried. I was like, there's no way I could do this. I mean, I bartended in college, but bartending and waiting tables are two different things. Totally different things. People don't care as long as you give them booze. Right. <laughs> So I know that you stayed in, in New York for a little bit, and then that just didn't pan out. It wasn't your thing. No. So then you went back home thinking, all right, I'll probably go to law school and follow in my father's footsteps because that seems to be the path of least resistance. But yes. again, not going to do that. So your father and you drive out to LA in 94. Your right. father said, I'll give you money for six months. And you then booked campaigns for Old Spice, Coors, Ford, Coca-Cola, you got Bull, which is where we met. Yeah. Bull was, as you know, it was a special time. It was a special cast. We were all different, very different personalities, but we all rode the oar the same way, in the same direction, wanting to make a great show, which was very special. And as you know now, you know, I was 28 or 29 at the time. I just thought they all were like that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, this is great. Everybody's nice. Yeah, that was a special, special thing. Yeah, I look back fondly on Bull. That was a point in my career where I can say that the show was not just a show, it was a time. It was really beautiful. We all got along super well, like lifelong friends. Uh, there really wasn't an asshole in the bunch. It really wasn't. And there was there, there, there were certainly different personalities. And, and, and I know, and I actually told your brother this, I think, I always knew when I, when I was in scenes with Alicia that I needed to really come prepared <laughs> because <laughs> it's going to go like that. 
That's very sweet. I'm glad I inspire that kind of dedication and fear. Yes, exactly. <laughs> then you you seem to do shows that are before their time. And the interesting thing with that was, is when I first got to Hollywood, because I was an athlete growing up, and for, when I first got Bronx County, they were pushing against me. He's, he's too much of an athlete to be a lawyer. And then in Partners, which was the next year, I was a lawyer again. And then uh, Bull, I was a stockbroker. And then after Bull, I went to do First Monday, where I was again a lawyer. And so when Playmakers came... He can't play an athlete. He plays all these lawyers and, and stockbrokers. Uh, my agents didn't want me to do the show. ESPN had never done a show. But I read the script and I was like, I got to do the show. It was the only show that I've ever done that ratings were through the roof. We had critical acclaim. We were AFI, one of the best AFI uh, dramas of the year. So we had both ratings and critical acclaim. But the NFL said they were negotiating Monday night and Sunday night football with Disney at that point in time. And they said, the first number one thing, if you guys want a shot at renegotiating this, you kill Playmakers. And not only do you kill Playmakers, you make sure you don't sell it to anyone else that can do it. So we were not only dead and buried, you can't even find DVDs, I think, anymore. I think yeah. it's on YouTube or something. But you well, can't because you guys were telling the stories that nobody wanted out there. You were talking about players coming out. You were talking about spousal abuse and domestic violence. It's, it's interesting because I don't know if you listened to the episode with Eben Britton who is a dear friend. He used to play for the Jaguars. And right. Oh, yeah. And he talks about like they laud you for killing people on the field. And then that anger, what happens to that anger when you step off the field? Like you have to flip a switch. Exactly. And for a lot of these guys, it's very hard to flip that switch because the very thing that they're getting applauded for, you bring that home and now it's illegal. Yeah, you no, know? for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, you have to be a special kind of crazy to be a football player. Yeah, and it's it's madness. And, and it's true that the society does. They, they laud these guys. And I got close to several of them. And it's actually amazing that more don't get into trouble. And our show, yeah, our show really tried yeah. to... Russell Hornsby, who's a wonderful actor, he played the older running back. And he was, yeah, his thing was, was bad. You know, he hit his wife and, and couldn't wrap his head around it. And, and Omar Gooding's character was, he was on so many drugs. I, mean, I don't know how many drugs he was on. So yeah, there was, and we did, we dealt with homosexuality too. A player that was uh, was gay and how he was ostracized. I mean, just completely, you know, it really was, it was before its time. It was just like Bull. Bull was before its time. If it would have been a year earlier, we, we were there for the crash. So it's, you know. Yeah, nobody wanted to see that. No. So what I'm super interested about you, it's my favorite thing that you say in your book, chapter 12, get up off the mat. Mm-hmm. Because in your career, you've been up, you've been down, and then you've been just riding the wave, not here, not there, but just steady going, steady as steady does. And then what year was it that the ringing started in your ear? Yeah, well, my, my uh, first wife was pregnant. That's right. Because Christian was born in 08. So it was summer of 08, summer right. of 08. Um, and I was actually here. I'm at my parents' home in Yakima, Washington. I grew up born and raised and we were driving, we were doing a long road trip and I got here and this is the country. And I, I just noticed a ringing in my, I didn't know if it was ringing in my ear or a ringing in my ears, but it was like, I'd gone to a loud concert and I was just like, that's odd. I don't know what that is. And it was so quiet in my house. I'm like, Oh, maybe I just haven't noticed it or so it persisted, and I, was, I went and saw my doctor, my regular doctor, and a great guy, and he said, it's probably listening to my headphones, because I, I did so much running. So you're probably listening to your headphones too much. It's tinnitus. Don't worry about it. 
Well, it persisted. And so in December, uh, Christian had just been born. Um, he was born in uh, Thanksgiving and, and the 29th. And I was like, you know, it's persisting too much. And so he said, go to an ENT. So I went to an ear, nose, throat guy in, uh, in Santa Monica, Dr. Dinesh Rod, great guy. And he gave me a hearing test. He said, probably nothing, but you have 10% hearing loss in your right ear. Uh, so we'd like to do a cascade MRI and, and just rule out anything. And, and then it was literally like December 21st or December 22nd. And I was supposed to get the results. Hadn't gotten them. So I call and, and the nurse, one of the nurses says, oh, yes, Mr. Will, I see your stuff right here. Uh, the doctor will call you in the next half an hour or a couple, you know, whatever. So half an hour goes by, an hour goes by, nothing happens. And then I call back and I say, hey, I thought, you know, the doctors, she goes, oh, yeah, you know what? He actually got into calling something else, but he wanted to say that, uh, that he wouldn't have a chance to look at it today, but he wants you to come in after Christmas. So I was like, all right, okay, I'll come in after Christmas. She goes, yeah, can we see you on like the 26th or 27th? I said, uh, yeah, shoot, I don't know, 26th or 27th. So my wife is hearing all that at the same time. I get off and I go, well, I guess, you know, I guess he was busy, so I'm just going to go in and 26, 27. She turned white and basically said, there's something wrong. He didn't want to ruin your Christmas. So anyway, we, we went through, obviously, a very awkward Christmas with my newborn baby. And sure enough, went on the 26th and 27th and was diagnosed with a, uh, a benign, thankfully, a brain tumor called an acoustic neuroma. My acoustic neuroma was pressing upon on my right side. It's in the brain and it's on the, the audio nerve, the facial nerve, which is obviously very important for us, and the balance nerve right into the brain. And so mine was particularly troublesome because it, mine was, it was a part of the facial nerve and I had 90% hearing. Um, and so I went and I, I met with the top acoustic neuroma surgeons in the, in the country, uh, Dr. Rick Friedman, who was my doctor, who's now head of UC San Diego. Uh, and he, he basically said, listen, you know, let's make a deal. Door number one is a right side craniotomy where they go in and they take half your skull off and it's a very long and, and difficult way, but we may be able to try to save your hearing. Door number two is, is we do a different type of uh, skull surgery where we go in, we can't save your hearing, but it's less evasive. Then door number three would, would have been radiation, cyber knife or gamma knife. But the thing is, if they miss, the radiation misses, then it can come back as brain cancer and you could be dead in a year or two. So that's cheery. Cheery, right? So yeah. all three doors suck. The story is very similar to my father's. So my father just went to a meeting and had a grand mal seizure. And then, oh. you know, two weeks later was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And oh. reading your story was really moving to me and brought me back because you're so athletic and so fit. And my father's first words to the doctor after the doctor told him he had brain cancer was, well, if you operate, can I play basketball again? And the doctor said to him, are you a jock? Cause I like jocks. Yeah. And my dad's like, yeah, I'm a jock. I'm like not anything else. Just could he play basketball? Yeah. Yeah. Be himself. Yeah. Can he yeah. be himself? And yeah. so you went through the surgery. Yeah. You chose the craniotomy. I chose the full Monty. Yeah. Because I wanted to try to save my, uh, save my hearing. Yeah. So, uh, and they gave me a 50, 50 chance. They, that's the other thing. They give you doors. Then it's all percentages, right? Percentage of this percentage of that. Uh, they gave me a 50, 50 chance of saving my hearing. Uh, sadly, uh, 
they couldn't save it. So I went from 90 to zero and also with a, a loud tinnitus on steroids on my right side. Um, for the first few years, I just told everybody like, why are you tired? Well, I'm tired because I'm fighting for this, but it's like you're in a classroom, but you're all the way back and you can't quite hear the teacher. So you're really paying attention. And after those classes, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm worn out because I was trying to hear. And so that was my life. And, and unfortunately, I got complications from the surgery. My patch in my head didn't work. And so I was dripping brain fluid. So I had to go back down to another ICU. That's when they were giving me percentages of life and death. And, and they tapped my spine. And you know, when I was at St. Vincent's, I was kind of coming in and out. But I knew that they were giving me the wrong medicine at one point. And I looked up and I saw the cross. And I was like, I got to get home to my little boy. And that was my only, you know. And so... I did. I mustered up. I got a phone call. I said, Hey, I need somebody down here because they're giving me the wrong things. And they were, and I uh, took another 10 or 12 days and I got out of there. All this time you have an infant son and with no disrespect to your ex-wife, she was not very helpful as she was going through. I don't know exactly reading your book. I have my own interpretation of what she was going through. I don't necessarily uh, agree with the postpartum. Right. Yeah. 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 When I go back to my father and seeing how much care my mother gave to my father, that my brother and I were basically, for lack of a better word, neglected. My brother and I took care of each other. You know, I drove when I was 12 years old and, and uh, Matthew made us grilled cheese sandwiches at eight years old. That's how we <laughs> survived. Right. Mm. So how you managed talk about getting off the mat you know, when everybody's telling you when you're bloodied and beaten up, stay down, stay down, you didn't stay down. But not only did you not stay down, but you got up by yourself. You did this by yourself. And then when your ex-wife was pretty much incapable of really taking care of Christian, you did that too. Where does that live in you? Where does that that sense of fight and that unbelievable sense of determination to not only heal, but take care of an infant child on your own, where does that come from? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I, I have very strong parents, very strong sister. I, I never saw it as there was other options. When I finally got home, the first day I made myself walk to my door, my bedroom door. The second day I made myself walk to my door outside. The next day I walked to the car because the brain's a computer and it just needs a lot of time to reboot. It just takes a long time. And I still remember when I even got the diagnosis at the time, I was happy that it was me, <laughs> that it wasn't my son. It wasn't my wife. It wasn't my parents because that's when I'm not good. I'm not good. If I see somebody I love hurting, I kind of like short wire because I just try to fix. And most of the time, you know, you can't fix. So for me, it was like, it was almost like taking on a part and I didn't really take too much time to dwell that I lost my hearing. I think at that time, I really don't think it was really conscious. It was just sort of get up, get up, get knocked down seven, get up eight. And in our career teaches us that if we can't do that, you do it all the time too. You can't be a professional. You might be a great acting class actor and, and do it as a hobby. But if, if you don't have that determination to be a professional and get hit down every day, it's, it's very similar. And you know, you, oh, you'd have the strength to do it too. It's just, it's what, it's what's set in front of you at the time. Just, okay, this is what I do now, you know? Anthony says he teaches our kids this, which I think is a great lesson. Athletes have to have amnesia. 
They have to have amnesia after every game because you got to look at the next game and not have it dependent on the outcome of the previous game. Exactly. That's, I think, how you have to get, you know, especially as an actor, I forgot about my last audition because yeah. I don't know what's going to happen with that. So I just have to now go into the next one. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. It's, it's kind of like a symbolic act of cleansing. Okay. Yeah. And on to the next. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Next. Exactly. And that's what my longtime agent, Dan Barron, said. I said that in the book. It's like Dan was always on to the next. Dan used to be one of my agents, too. He's a very, very nice guy. Great guy. Great he guy. He cares an awful lot. I remember I did a scene in Jericho. It was like when I'm finally realizing in Jericho that my hometown blew up and probably my whole family blew up in the bomb. And so now I'm stuck on this farm with Brad Beyer. Great guy. Yeah. yeah. But I... Uh, fall to the ground in a heap of tears, which, you know, for me is like crying. Oh yeah, you love falling to the ground in a heap of tears. <laughs> Everybody else is like, God, how do you cry like that? I'm like, how do you not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the way, have you not met me? I'm a tired toddler. <laughs> but I remember Dan called me like the day after it aired to compliment my work. And it meant so much to me. So he's a good guy. He's a very good guy. But yeah, it is on to the next. And by the way, Chris, I think in this lifetime, if you hear, I love you, daddy, you got the job, that's really all that you need to hear. It really is. Good for you. Well stated, well stated. And you've heard that over and over and over again. Yeah. yeah. So for me, when I look at your life and I look at the family that you were raised into, the parents that you were raised into with their values, and I mean, look at your sister. She just takes on the world by storm. She sure does. You've done nothing other than what you did and get up off the mat. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's true. And that's where I did have support, you know. So now your son has got to be just turned 11? Just turned 12. Yeah. Okay, right. So he's Esme's age, right. He's very thoughtful and, and tough as nails. He had a difficult summer, but he's, now he's moved to Sedona, Arizona. Right. Uh, he was in Santa Rosa before right. that and, and both moves that I, I did not want to happen. And we make the best of things. And but yeah, that's been very difficult. But yeah, I get him for summers and holidays and I'm going out there in two weeks. You had a divorce. You I had a divorce that was uh, not pleasant. And then after my divorce, my ex-wife then wanted to move to Santa Rosa, which I fought and I lost. But then I, I was flying up there every two to three weeks to see my son and a great athlete, soccer, great baseball player, a switch hitter. And we were making that work. But my ex-wife last year wanted to move to Sedona, Arizona, because she needs to move to a high desert. Um, so we had a, a very difficult custody battle this summer uh, and um, I lost. So I gained some special things, which obviously I'm not going to talk about, but there's some some issues and it was a very difficult, I think, judgment for the judge and and it was a very, very difficult eight-day trial. I was on the stand for four and a half days, plus they deposed me for another eight hours. Uh, it, everything is scorched earth, which is really sad. And by the way, my wife was fantastic. We would have gotten crushed without my wife. She works at Google and so organized. And so she took three months off to help my lawyer because my ex-wife had a team of lawyers. And it was a family affair. I, had, I didn't have much of a chance anyway. I'm the dad. I had 30% custody. So we were looking to switch to 70 to 80% custody. And we just didn't quite have enough for that. But we got the judgment in September of this last year. 
And I don't think that I got off the mat for several months. And finally, it was my wife, my current wife saying, Sharon, she was like, she took me one night. She goes, listen, you haven't been present and I need you to help parent my kids. You've been a great stepdad, a wonderful stepfather, and you're vacant. Of course, you hear something like that, and I've been through enough therapy, but even then I was like, what do you mean I'm vacant? I'm here. I'm picking up kids. I'm making dinners. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I haven't seen my son in two months. I'm there. And she goes, no, but you're not there. You're doing the, the mechanics of it, but you're not in it. And I copped to that. I said, yeah, you're right. I ha- haven't been. And now I, I, I've gotten back in. And that's been, that's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. I've had to plug back in fathering my stepkids when I can't father my son and, and know now that I will not be able to father my son except for holidays and summers. That was one of my newest challenges and one of my, you know, humility in the way of like, I have to think, and you know, and you know this, my, and mothers know this, it's probably much more self-absorbed uh, male actors sometimes. Like, I have to put everybody else before me. And then it, it brings so much happiness to you. But it took me a while to probably get there. That was a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you unpacked a lot there. But I want to say this, I find it really fascinating that we started off this conversation talking about your career and then getting a brain tumor and being told to kind of get your affairs in order. And you were talking about life and death and you talk about it very matter-of-factly because it was you. You know, you said you were glad that it was you. And there's a very black and white energy that comes off of you when it comes to, to that journey that you went on. But when you talk about your journey with your son, you see that change in you. And I feel the emotion that you have in that journey because you can't cut that off. The brain tumor is gone. It's done. Yes, you have no hearing in the right ear, but you still have the left. But, right. the, but the fight for your son is where I really feel your pain. Yeah, no, and it continues. I had to get a lawyer again because my ex-wife doesn't believe in vaccinations. And my son hasn't been vaccinated since he was two. And so I'm getting all the doctors so I can try to get my son fully vaccinated. And so it continues. It's, uh, it's very difficult. And, and, and it, that's exactly right. It's because you know, hurt me or whatever that is, but I see my son That's right. shed a tear. That's right. You know, it's a whole different ball game. That's right. But you know what? You are parenting your son. You are fathering your son. If he doesn't know it now, and I believe he does, he's 12 years old and he's your kid. He knows that you fought for him. And when yeah. he's 18, he gets to choose. Get you anything, you'll get a knock on your door. Yeah. And that's, that's what my sister, obviously, and my wife and my parent, you know, they were all, we went to the mats and we lost, but he will know, he will know, and he does. He, does. he won't come back as an 18-year-old go saying, dad, why didn't you do anything? And so I do, I, I take some solace in that. Well, Chris, you've shared so much and your story is so, is just so relevant and so personal, but yet can be embraced by so many. Because I really don't know anybody who's just had it smooth sailing your whole entire life. Obviously, we don't come into this world bubble wrapped. No. And you've been through it. And every single time you've been down and they told you to stay down, you didn't. You got back up. And not only did you get up back up for yourself, but you got back up for your son. And you got back up also for yourself in a different way in that you opened yourself up to your wife. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think 
you know, and she's another bootstrap bitch. Oh, tell me about it. She is, she is, she's fantastic. And after my first marriage, I never thought I would get married and, and didn't plan on it at all. I was going to live a Californication, David, the company's life. I had bought a sports car. I had a condo on the beach and that was pretty much it. And then I meet my wife and I'm like, Oh my God. And she wants, you know, all the cliches. She makes me be a better man, you know? And, oh, well, yeah. you are, you're an incredible man. <laughs> you are an incredible man. And thank you so much for sharing here today. You bet. Thank you. I adore you. Me too, sweetie. I just want to thank all of you so very much for spending your time listening to me and my guests on Bootstrap Bitch. It really means a lot. I hope that you're taking some good stuff from it and I hope that you're enjoying it and enjoying everybody's stories. And I hope that you follow me, follow this podcast, Bootstrap Bitch, and rate it, like it, do something with it, please. I beg of you from the OG Bootstrap Bitch as I'm pulling up my bootstraps here doing it. Please follow and rate and like. Thank you.